0: Welcome to 5th Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I catch up with Mark Grinness, a global real estate hospitality and construction leader at Ernst & Young. Mark shares pandemic recovery lessons from his clients in Asia, and also explains how the working from home era will change the layouts of office buildings around the globe. Enjoy the conversation. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining. Uh, Where are you joining from today?
1: I am in uh, uh, the Garden State of New Jersey. So, uh... I, like write, uh, I commute into our head office out of New York.
0: Nice. Um, well, just for background, I guess, can you just give everyone kind of your your background and kind of your, your role at, at E&Y and in your focus on real estate?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, EY, We uh, first of all, I, I've been the uh, vast majority of my career um, with EY. I, uh, I started uh, the firm in our Southern California office and uh, found my way uh, to, uh, to setting up various businesses around. Uh, one was in Texas. I started our, uh, our Japanese practice, and then uh, now I'm uh, based and uh, run the entire real estate business uh, out of New York. We have about 17,000 people that support the real estate industry, and uh, uh, we're obviously located in uh, all the major cities consulting, advisory, and obviously our core uh, business is audit, tax, and strategy.
0: Got it. And, and I imagine that, you know, from your vantage point, you're having so many conversations with the leaders of real estate companies globally. Just at a macro level, how would you characterize the state of the real estate industry today?
1: Yeah, look. You know, I think pers- perspective is key. Um, four or five months ago, I think if you would to, you know, kind of check the pulse of the entire industry around the globe, the, the, the market conditions were either good, very good or outstanding. Um, and, you know, so, you know, from that lens, you fast forward you know, four or five months, and, uh, you know, we're navigating, you know, properties flat on their backs, and, and uh, you know, obviously, an incredibly difficult time. So that, you know, that window is, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's difficult, it's, it's ironic, this is my second pandemic, I was in, uh, in uh, Tokyo, uh, for the for the first SARS. And I think, you know, the perspective of we've got to kind of start to, to, to look Past this, you know, as, as as you know, as as difficult as as it may be, uh, but you know, it's a as I survey kind of our leaders around the business. I talk to our folks in Southeast Asia, in China. You know, you start to see that you know there is a, a an end to this. And in, in China, we're seeing some of the occupancies in the hospitality business, albeit tough, um, improving. Um, we're seeing you know activity in Germany that's uh, that's improving. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a difficult time. We are, uh, our industry is a series of, of contracts of businesses that are tenants, that support landlords, that support mortgage loans, that support credit bonds, and that entire chain, you know, is obviously, you know, severely disrupted, uh, um, you know, as, 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 you know, as businesses shut down. the other kind of key thing to think about is is it is tough also on people there's a lot of uh young talent uh in these companies and many of them have haven't been in in the industry for more than 10 years and so this is their their real you know bump in the road that they're experiencing for the first time so it's the it's different uh, difficult as well for people but you know a lot of the veterans that run this business you know, have 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 been to this rodeo before, and I think um, you know if you really look at how we're responding as an industry, you know, I think we're we're doing a under the circumstances an incredible job of responding to you know the challenges at hand and uh, and 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 making the most of a very difficult situation.
0: And, and given what you were saying about um, the the experience of your clients in in Asia, that's a really also, interesting aperture to have, which is in some ways they were the first impacted. And I'm curious, like, what are some of the trends that you think that portends for the U.S. right with respect to our markets and, and, and our recovery here? What do you think we can learn from Asia?
1: Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you one. Uh, um, this was maybe maybe a month or six weeks ago when I called one of my partners in Singapore, and I was speaking to her, and she you know, she, we were talking for a while and she says, you were talking about back to the office and you know, what's the implications and all that. She says, oh my God, I'm 327. I'm what do you mean you're 327? She says, I'm 327. I will be the 327th person that can be allowed to go back to the office and I can't wait. And I think, you know, I think that's, you know, telling in the sense that, you know, obviously we're all navigating what remote work is gonna mean and you know and and you know oh we'll never go back to the office and all that i think i think geographically the answer is going to be different um and i think we've got to be be mindful about you know i don't think every single region and every single part of the world is going to kind of view this remote work you know uh the same you know in the same way i think maybe maybe one other you know story is um you know i spoke with my uh my colleague in Germany. And he said he uh, was in the office. And you know, our in New York, we're not back yet. Um, you know, we're really being very you know uh, thoughtful and on uh, getting back. But he said I'm back in the office. I said so. How is it? He says I love it. I said why? He says because my day ends when I go home. <laughs> and you know, and I think you know, I th- I think this this pandemic has you know it it has absolutely you know cemented some changes. Um, in behavior and, 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 and changed our view of what 's possible you know from a remote perspective, but you know there 's also you know, obviously the the other side of the equations of remote fatigue and so on and so forth so uh, I just think you know different perspectives I, I think are a little bit uh, insightful of of you know what is this future going to look look like when we 're really back to normal
0: and it 's an interesting point of view the 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 idea that like a a work day and kind of either being at or not being at the office marks this line of demarcation between like, you know, uh, professional life and personal life. And to some extent, to some extent, we've collapsed that, right? Like that has been collapsed by virtue of Zoom. Like we're both in each other's homes and it almost feels like work has has, uh, become ubiquitous. Like I, I work all the time. And I'm working in very different time zones. And it, it feels like, you know, a lot of um, a lot of tenants and a lot of big companies are thinking through what does the future of work look like? Is it virtualized completely? And does it transition to truly a virtual state? But a lot of the feedback I've gotten is that it feels like we're hitting this upper bound of what people can tolerate, what knowledge workers can really tolerate from a, a work-life balance perspective. And that COVID has really pressurized that test. With all that as a backdrop, what do you think the net of the whole world's going to go virtual or everyone's going to go back to an office? Where do you think that nets out from your perspective?
1: Yeah, look, I think this, this case study is um, it, it, it's, it's, it's not a controlled environment, right? And, or, or maybe it is a controlled environment in the sense that we have no choice. You know, we <laughs> you know for many of us, we, we have no choice. We, we are here. Um, and, and I would say, and it's, it's ironic, you know, for 10,000 people that, you know, normally, you know, find their way to, uh, the middle of Manhattan, uh, and the EY office, all of them are, are, are virtual. And so I think, you know, I think the virtual fatigue, um, is, is in part a result that it's, it's not our choice, right? We, you know, we're, we're in an environment where we want to control, you know, we, we love our apps that work, and we love our technology that works. Um, and we, when we get an email, we expect it to come across the wires instantly so we can open it. And, and we are now in an environment where we have to stay home. And I, I think we're going to find that, you know, that when we have the option, it's clearly going to be, you know, you're going to absolutely value the office experience 100%. But you're also going to, at the same time going to recognize that you know, the, the priorities of your personal life that you can maybe manage around um, and the things that you want to do, this virtual alternative is a very attractive option you know, to be able to fulfill your obligations from a work perspective, but also the other parts of your life that you want to make certain you it's your kid's game or, or, or whatever it is.
0: Yeah, and, and it's it, it's interesting to think about just what that means in terms of cities, right, going forward, like there's these cities like New York, obviously, and and San Francisco that have been these magnets. They've had this just impossible-to-resist draw for certain kinds of knowledge workers. And if you see a scattering, right, of the, the, the knowledge workforce, right, to cities like, I'm here in Park City, and Salt Lake City, I know, is, is, is booming, and it's booming in part because there's this, e-migration out of, you know, cities like San Francisco. Do you think that we end up in a world where there's a lot more offices for, you know, the big Fortune 500 companies in all the major cities, as opposed to fewer like headquarter like offices?
1: I guess it kind of, I mean, maybe I'll speak as, as we occupy 22, 23 million square feet. Um, So when we're, you know, obviously all around the globe. And so, you know, I think our view of the office is, you know, it is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a place. Um, it's a place for innovation. It's a place for meetings. It's a, a place for collaboration. It's a place for special projects and just-in-time projects. And I think if you look at those, that work, that activity, you can probably ascribe a pretty high value to that activity and say that activity is certainly logical for a central Manhattan headquarters and a central Manhattan rent. But then when you kind of move into other tasks and you say uh, training, not that it's not important, but does it have to be done in central Manhattan? Heads down work, Does does it have to be done in Manhattan? And so I, I think, and obviously I'm using Manhattan as an example, but you know I think as I think as we get a little bit more sophisticated about how we use space and and understand the value of space and the cost of space, it's, it's not just an item. I try to, when I talk to clients, I try to oftentimes walk around the hall and I say, you know, I said, let's go for a walk, and I. I create the image of a of an electric meter and the little thing that spins around on the inside of it. And I said, "Look at that empty desk and look at that empty desk." And I and you know, to, it's it's real money. And and I think you know, you know, it, it's been viewed as maybe kind of a you know, it's three, four, five percent of the bottom line. And I can't, I have to have it, and there's nothing I can do about it. And I think we're really getting into an environment now where we're starting to understand what it costs, we're starting to understand how to use it, you know, effectively, and we have the tools and technology to really optimize how we use that space. But I think we're at a real good point to, you know, extract the right value, the right use of the space, um, you know, as we uh, as we go forward.
0: And what are the other unique features of this crisis and this capital markets crisis and this kind of real estate crisis, right, that that we're in right now. And maybe crisis is almost too draconian a term, but this this, um, disruption of the real estate industry um, is the collision between um, how the public sector has responded and this collision between, you know, um, government stimulus and the packages the government has offered and the real estate industry. And we've seen a lot of that. Obviously, retail being probably... The most extreme the most obvious what to you has stood out about the ways in which the government has responded to this crisis with an eye towards how it impacted the real estate sector in particular
1: yeah look it's uh i, I don't know how many people had uh, had pandemic on their you know worry checklist um and so um you know th- this was this one was you know uh, um you know hard to prepare for and you know I, you know, economies are, are made up of millions and millions of transactions, and stopping it um, is, is, you know, it's, it's just one of those scenarios that's, that's hard to see. So, you know, look, I think governments have have responded, you know, all things considered, you know, you know pretty aggressively and very, you know, do-anything type approach. Central banks, do-anything approach. Um, you know, I, I think... I was worried very, on, very early on uh, at some of the, you know, the belief that investors believed that certain debt products may not be backed up, may not be originated, or, 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 or uh, uh, there would be liquidity in it. And, and like anything I said you before, I mean, it, it, there would be a cascading effect. And I think the central bank was incredibly aggressive at, at letting the entire marketplace know, you know, we are here um, and we have a very big uh, a checkbook. So I think that, you know, that confidence um, that there would be buyers for products, debt products, you know, uh, what have you, would, would be that was incredibly important. I also think, you know, I think around the world policy was different, you know, whether it was, you know, uh, 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 not allowing for foreclosure or allowing for deferrals or, you know, whether it was mandated or not. Um, I think some of those policies also were were kind of good standstill, so that there wasn't a train wreck. Um, but you know, I you know, we're we're going to have to eventually kind of relaunch this. I know there's a bunch of policy measures that are going to take us through September. You know, you know, I, it's it's it seems to me that we're still there's going to be another you know action that's going to be required even past September. So. You know, I you know all things considered, I think you know it's been managed you know relatively well, and, and our industry has done relatively well in in you know in a very difficult environment.
0: And one of the things, um, obviously, I think a lot about is, you know, about five years ago, it felt like there was this um, age of enlightenment in the real estate industry, where you know the, this industry that had been you know, a massive industry, 13% of the US economy, but clearly one of the most just painfully obvious tech laggards, just a late adopter of technology. I mean, the way I think about it is the real estate industry basically sat out about two decades worth of innovation. And then around 2015, they recognized, oh, there's this, it's actually critical that we take a forward posture on tech. And In some ways, you can see Fifth Wall and, and my firm as, as a manifestation of that right of this need this imperative to adopt technology how do you think and in what ways do you think this crisis changes or accelerates that that need to adopt technology for real estate owners
1: i guess you know given i've been in the industry a while maybe i'll defend the industry for a (laughs) for for a moment (laughs) (laughs) uh, because you're kind of looping me in that bucket I just I want you to know Uh, look (laughs) I think we had a we had a a business model that said hello I need space for my company okay I've got this white box that you can buy for you know rent for 25 years and we'll catch back we'll touch back base with you in 25 years now if the iPhone or a consumer product was such that here's a product we expect it to have a lifespan of 25 years and then we'll revisit it after 25 years. You don't get the consumer feedback, the change, the, you know, that, that structure. Um, and in part, it's a reason is, is that when you build a billion dollar building or a five billion dollar building, um, you know, you've got to have a debt structure. You've got to have capital markets that'll finance that giant building. And so it has to be long-term in nature. So what has this pandemic done? Like for us, our view is flexibility. Our view is, is we're looking for shorter-term leases. We're looking for, you know, hub and spoke. We want some, you know, we want some alternative choices on a three-year deal. And I think what that's going to do is it's now making the we're now a bit more of a consumer, um, and we're going to we're going to be evaluating: Is it a healthy building? Does it have the latest tech? Uh, our lease is up in 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 three years, and and you know, and now we can we can go somewhere else because you know this other property you know, has better characteristics and better attributes for us. And I think that landscape is going to is will drive development. Um, I, I think that's one change. Obviously, the other change, you know, which you know is is kind of obvious, is you know all of the responses to COVID, touchless access, you know, heaven forbid, not having to sign in at the front desk, you know, and wait and have someone call, and you know, you know, a lot of those tasks that I think you know we're we're going to you know graciously you know sunset into the distance, you know, I think that is igniting the sector tremendously, and. And it's providing a operating system, a a footprint that we can build on. And so I think that those are you know, those are real responses to the pandemic that I think have, have sent us in a different trajectory.
0: I think that's right, and it, it almost feels like, you know, in, in so many other categories of tech, you see that consumer tech introduces this um, kind of on-demand nature to technology and a kind of consumer centricity and it's almost like the real estate industry has been compelled to adopt that. And uh, across dimensions that probably they didn't, they, they didn't almost self conceptualize as having to provide uh, things like clean air. Um, and I think about, you know, when we signed our office yep. leave, um, I signed that and I don't think I asked the question, Hey, how is the air quality regulated? And that was not a top of mind question. Uh, and I would not have intuitively thought of my landlord as having a kind of embedded responsibility in providing me with clean air. It was just kind of a given. Now, I don't think it's a given. And what's interesting is, is kind of that collision between, as you described, the, the, the demand for flexibility with all these new criteria that are that are put on landlords. Um, and how do you think that'll play out from a public health perspective, meaning, do you think landlords are going to have to take a very proactive approach around positioning their assets as having real policies and procedures and controls to protect the health and the well-being of all the tenants, all the employees working in their buildings
1: yeah i i I think this um, i mean there's this will this pandemic will have a, a, a lasting effect and i, I think you know, look, I think, I think innovation kind of started with, you know, this, this you know, energy and, and looking at building management systems. I think that was kind of one of the, you know, the obvious ones that I think technology really, you know, got after. You know, obviously, it's, it's, it's an immediate return. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's value. And, and now I think, you know, I think we're kind of morphing into, you know, ESG because now we can measure something. And we recognize the costs of that, and so that that couples very nicely with ESG. And now I think we're looking at health and 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 air quality, and and so you know I think all of the kind of ways that we inhabit and occupy space, we've kind of got you know three legs of the stool um, that that we're, we're that I, I think we're not going back on. I, I think that I think we're getting to the point where that's like you know. It's the checklist, um, but I think that checklist is going to grow, and 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 I think that's a, it's an exciting time in the industry because that's going to be your competitive positioning. Well, you know, we we have you know we have uh, a lighting, we have ability to customize the lighting, you know, for exactly whoever the user is. We got personal preferences as you go into that you know office space. That customization, I think, is uh, is is kind of how we're, what the direction that we're moving in.
0: And and one of those legs uh, of that stool that you mentioned is sustainability. And, you know, well before COVID, um, we saw a lot of pressure on, on landlords, right, to, to move towards a standard of, of carbon neutrality. You saw that from regulators in cities like New York and Los Angeles, you saw that from large capital allocators on the debt side, on the equity side, even saw it from tenants. And, and so in some ways, the real estate industry was kind of triangulated between all these forces that are pushing it towards carbon neutrality. And I'm curious, from your perspective, right, where you're working with, you know, large real estate corporates around their finances, how are they planning for that? And how are they thinking about, you know, what is our role in moving towards a, a carbon neutral future?
1: I, I guess I'll, I'll respond as, a, as an objective, Uh, response we surveyed um, uh, over 200 companies um, and this was literally uh, in the last couple weeks and we went through and we said what's your priority what's your technology priority Um, and and they and the the questions were were very wide you know but but the the first thing that they responded was what's most important is I got to run my uh, my business more efficiently and productive and so it was any tools and technology that can make my business run more efficiently, that's a priority. The second priority, the second most important item was that they wanted technology to leverage new products, new solutions um, that they could expand their business. And the third was technology that could, that could drive their, an, an ESG initiative within their organization. And so I, you know, I would, I, I, you know, on the one hand, you know, maybe, maybe disappointed that it's third uh, on the other hand, glad that it's in the top three um, with respect to uh, from a policy perspective. And I, I think, you know, I think we as an industry are, are, you know, are, it's evolving, you know, I think we were, we're awakening, um, you know, to, to that priority and and what, what's possible. And, and I think in in part, you know, again, we're, we're we're getting to the point where we can start measuring things, and as soon as you can start measuring things, you can manage them. Um, and I think that's a you know that's a real ab- important advancement. And I and I think I think our you know real estate you know developers and 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 owners and end users uh, you know all are are focused on it, and I, I do think it's a rising priority within the industry.
0: Hey, I I totally agree with your point around measurement, right? Like once you can measure something, you can actually track forward progress. Um, but what's interesting is there's this other side of the coin to measurement, which is as soon as you can measure something, the government can tax it. And uh, to some extent that, that's kind of what we've seen, right? In, in New York and Los Angeles, which is um, that carbon is being measured, buildings are being audited, and there's a set of standards that are put in place that basically require building owners to get to carbon neutrality. And to the extent they're non-compliant, effectively it takes the form of taxes. How have real estate owners been, been planning for that and thinking through that? Um, because it feels like that's a, that's a secular trend that's gonna play out over the next probably two decades, right? that more and more cities are probably going to move in this direction. And if you're the owner of an asset, you really have to have a long-term time horizon. So real estate is a long-term business. How are they thinking about that and planning for that?
1: Yeah, yeah. Look, I think um, you know we we started with you know you know disclosures and 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 ways of which companies need to to you know communicate what their uh, what their ESG disclosures were, and I think now we're kind of migrating toward the now we're you know we're going to tax we're going to punish we're going to fine we're going to you know and so you know look i we we do need to do something so and i think i think i think owners particularly you know there's there's two points right you, you know, we have we work with all the, the big developers and, and a lot of our headquartered buildings and we say look this is a priority and when you're building a new building what do you want to do <laughs> you know, it, it, it's one thing when you're, you know, starting from scratch and building something, you know, you know, if you have a, a you know, a, a 200 year old historic building and so on and so forth. So there's orders of magnitude of, of how to address this. Um, and, and I think, you know, I, I think it's, it's, I think it's being addressed. I think it's a priority for our industry. And, and uh, I think, it, you know, with after Davos and everything, I think there was an incredible intensity and focus Um, you know it was before then but I I feel like it really ramped up and then uh, I did feel like this pandemic uh, you know uh, has has definitely been a uh, an interruption in uh, in that progress but I have no doubt uh, that that real focus and intensity uh, will pick right back up Uh, uh, will absolutely pick right back up.
0: I think that's right and um, I used to say as we were starting to think about sustainability that you know, sustainability needs to be on every real estate CEO's top three priorities, right? And it probably should be number one. And I said that in 2019. Um, and I think I was probably wrong about 2020 because I think COVID is every CEO and the response to COVID is every CEO's top priority. But my sense is that in some ways, the, the public health crisis, while it has an immediacy and it has an expediency that was kind of urgent uh, in, in how real estate owners had to respond, the climate crisis is much slower moving, right? It's moving at a more sustained pace. But I think if we look out 10 years, you know, the the imperative to decarbonize, the imperative to become carbon neutral um, is gonna be thrust on the real estate industry. And it's gonna be exciting to see how they respond to that because it it represents, I think just financially a really unique opportunity for owners to differentiate themselves because the benefit of being carbon neutral is also that it's lower cost, but also an opportunity for collaboration between public sector and private sector. And that's probably one of the the corollaries to the current crisis we're in, which is it almost feels like the public sector and the private sector um, with respect to to COVID and its response has collaborated more than they ever have. Um, And so that's just exciting to see. Um, I'm curious... You know, I always like asking this question to everyone uh, that, that's kind of in a, in a leadership position in the real estate industry, which is like, if you were to look 10 years out um, at the office industry, right, as kind of an example, what would be the most salient features of difference versus today? Like, what would really be different in terms of how buildings would be operated versus how they are today? How do you think about that?
1: I think of, um, I think of two islands. Uh, I think the first island is is the building and and the 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 building operator historically that looked at their jurisdiction and that it ended, you know, once you entered the, you know, the, the glass door of the tenant space. And you look at the the other island, which is, you know, the inside the tenant space and the things that are are are, are personal. About you know um, productivity, you know collaboration, use of space, how how we work, and I think I think those two you know the, those two shall never meet um, you know but but I, I think in the future they they will because we're on we're coming on standardized platforms you know we've got you know well they know my uh, my uh, my Outlook knows if I worked out today. It knows you know, how many meetings I've been to if, it was, if I was into the office. And, and not to say that you know, all of you know, certain private industry information is, but I do think there is an a analysis to be able to really understand what makes for productive teams, what makes for, for successful teams. I know that there's been a lot of different studies on that. But I think if you start to combine what the information about the building about the digital twin and all the information that we're able to track on a building side, and the activities of the occupants, and really try to extract big data information about that activity and how to make organizations more successful, collaborative. What's working? I think that is. A, I think that is a. It's an intangible, but I think it's very achievable. And I think. And I think we will navigate. You know, we, we all get uncomfortable about you know, personal information. But there, are, I think we're finding that there is information that is can be shared that can be very beneficial to the success of people's careers, success of businesses, and so I think I think that is you know one area that I think you know will be very important and something that I think we'll uh, we'll we'll achieve.
0: Absolutely. Well, Mark, this has been uh, so interesting to get your insights. You're in such a unique position to to share them. Um, And I'm sure that you're incredibly busy with your clients, um, supporting them when they probably need it most. So um, I really appreciate you taking the time um, to chat with me.
1: Oh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks so much.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.